I would like to invite you again to turn to the book of Joshua, this time to the ninth chapter, Joshua chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading with the first verse. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the great sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. I want to stop at that point to make a couple of observations about those uh, two verses First, we need to see those as the introduction to the next three chapters. This is the Grand Rebellion, in which uh, all of the the nations of Canaan were involved. There are six ethnic groups that are mentioned here. The Girgashites were the only Canaanite nation left out. Normally, there are seven nations that are mentioned as comprising the nations within, uh, within the land of Canaan. We don't know if the Girgashites were driven out when they conquered Ai and Jericho or whether they simply fled. But the point of the author is that this rebellion against Israel was extensive. It involved all of the groups, all of the tribes, all of the nations within the land of Canaan. The other conclusion to be drawn from these first two verses is that this effort to drive Israel from the land involved all portions of the land. From the highlands, the mountain range that runs up and down the spine of Israel, down through the Shephelah, the slopes, down to the Mediterranean coast, and from the southern part of the Mediterranean coast all the way up to Lebanon. Every part of the land of Canaan that we call today Palestine or Israel was involved in this effort to expel Israel from, uh, from the land. The second observation I want to make about these two verses is that this coalition was highly irregular. Normally, these nations couldn't get together for any purpose. As a matter of fact, they were, they were usually at war with, with one another. The Egyptians, who had a, a kind of loose control over the land of Canaan at, the, at this point in history, had never attempted to try to regulate their activities. They simply let them fight it out among themselves. These were city-states. They had their own kings. They had their, uh, their own, uh, uh, their own uh, political setup. And they were constantly at war with one another, but their hatred of Israel caused them to override that natural animosity they had for each other and to join hands in this common cause to expel Israel from, uh, from the land. I couldn't help but think while the kids were singing that this is, uh, was very much the situation in Jesus' day with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, represented opposite poles theologically. The Pharisees were very conservative. The Sadducees were very liberal. They didn't believe in, uh, in the world of spiritual realities. They didn't believe in a resurrection, which, as the kids say, is, said is why they were sad, you see. And uh, they couldn't get along on any basis until Jesus came, and their mutual hatred for him caused them to form a coalition to kill him. It's the same sort of thing that we see here. Now, the third observation that, that, that I want to make about these two verses is that underlying this effort to expel Israel was a hatred for God. You'll notice uh, the way in which the author begins when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things. Actually, the text merely says when they heard. They heard what? 
They heard what had transpired at Mount Ebal. When, when Israel, after the conquest of Jericho and I, gathered at Mount Ebal to reaffirm the covenant with God, they left behind these great slabs on which the law was written. Canaanites saw that, uh, that allegiance to God. They wanted nothing to do with Israel's God. They hated him, and that was what was behind their efforts to drive Israel out of the land. What, what we have to understand, and, and, and this to me is a very significant point to be drawn from, from, from this, uh, this coalition, this effort to expel Israel from the land, is that the world quite naturally hates God. We must never forget that. Underlying all of their antipathy toward Christians, toward Christ, toward the word of God, is a hatred of God. If you want that spelled out, it's uh, found in Psalm 2. The psalmist uh, says, why do the nations rage? Why do they conspire? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against the Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So their discontent becomes resolved. They intend to drive God off the throne. They don't want anything to do with God. That's the mindset of the world. And we simply have to understand that's the way it is. And we live in a world where people do not want God in their lives. They don't want him confronting their sin. They, don't, they, they, they just they don't want him around. They're very uncomfortable when they're up close and personal with God. Now, this was the situation that that Israel faced. And this is the situation which we will face, the world will say, as they said during Jesus' day, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, some of you may have seen the uh, series on Channel 4 on the brain. I have seen a couple of those segments. Very, very interesting. Uh, they, uh, the the um, script writers and the scientists who appear on that program uh, grant that there's something unique about man. Uh, we're singular among all the other, uh, all the rest of nature, all the other animals. Something quite unusual. We can create, we can communicate. There are other things that are only true of, of human beings. And uh, they uh, describe in great, te- great detail all the intricacies of the human brain. It, it is absolutely amazing what that brain can do. I uh, read a couple of weeks ago an article on artificial intelligence. As you know, they're, they're attempting to program computers to think like the human mind. And they've started by program, programming them to play chess against chess masters. They know that they can, they can program a computer that is unbeatable. But in order to do so, it would take 156 years between moves. Uh, and if you use a cray, it's something like 25 years between, uh, between moves. And that's simply to, uh, to uh, parody in some way the, way the way the mind approaches the various alternatives that are involved in, in the game of chess. And here's this marvelous organ that's, that, that, that we take for granted in our, in our, uh, that makes us unique. And yet in that, in that segment, there's not one reference to God. Not one. As a matter of fact, what's said is that a couple of billion years ago, we just uh, crawled out of the slime and pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we are today what we are because we're self-made men. We have gone from slime balls to unique uh, 
uh, unique organisms uh, in, in the rest of the world of nature, and we did it all by ourselves. That's the point. We don't need God. Someone has pointed out that uh, the greatest tragedy for the atheist is that when he sees something beautiful, when he sees something unique, he has no one to thank. The point of the psalmist in Psalm 8 is that man is a little less than God. He is the most godlike being on the face of the earth. And his conclusion is, praise God. Praise the name of God, who's able to, uh, to create something that, uh, that remarkable. But the world will not do that. We ought to give credit where credit is due. But the world will not do that because there is inside this consummate hatred for God. And this is what uh, this is what motivated uh, the Canaanites. They uh, they wanted to drive God out of their world and out of their thoughts. Now, there's more ways than one to skin a cat. There is the direct approach, and there is the indirect approach, approach which the Gibeonites employed. Let me uh, read on, verse three. When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended, literally tied up. Normally, if you had the time to do so, if you wanted to repair a wineskin, you would sew it up. They, uh, these were very clever uh, men. They took their sacks and kind of pulled out a little portion of it and, and tied a string around it as though they had been on the road and had not had time to mend it properly. Very, very crafty about their ruse. The men put, put worn and patched sandals on their feet. Uh, if they wore, if they drove Jeeps, the tires would be bald. And they wore old clothes, that patched jeans on. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. That was a bald-faced lie. They did not come from a distant country. They came from right over the hill. Uh, Gibeon was about 20 miles as the crow flies from Gilgal. Israel had, uh, they had marched against uh, Jericho and then against Ai, which was up in the high country, only about seven or eight miles from Gibeon. Then they had gone back to Gilgal, which was their base camp near the, near the river Jordan. And it was to this base camp that this delegation, uh, uh, these envoys came from, from Gibeon. And they made out as though they had traveled a long distance. They said, we want to make a treaty. You have to understand, they did not want to submit to Israel's God. It becomes abundantly clear as the story unfolds. They wanted to save their skins. That's all they had in mind. They they were looking out for themselves. Now, Moses had prohibited any treaty with, with the Canaanites because and Moses was God's spokesman, it's because God knew that any sort of alliance with the Canaanites would eventually end in in the corruption of of the people of God. These people were utterly ungodly, utterly corrupted morally, unsalvageable, and God wanted Israel to have nothing to do with the Canaanites, so they were not to make treaties with them. These men came from within the land of Canaan. They were Canaanites, and they wanted to make a treaty, and as the text goes on to tell us, in order to have peace with the nation of Israel. There's been a lot of study done on this concept of peace or shalom in the Old Testament by Old Testament theologians and linguists, and they've come to the conclusion that the word basically means friendship. 
It's used, for example, of a, of a set of scales that are set so that one, one plate, uh, one uh, pan is level with the other. There's equity or equality there. There's an alliance. There is a friendship, a cessation of enmity, and a friendship formed. That's what they, they wanted to be friends with the people of God. And they, they came with this offer to make a treaty. So uh, the men of Israel, the wiser and older heads, those that, that ought to have seen through the, uh, the ruse, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, and that's put here deliberately by the author to help us to see that, that these people from Gideon were part of this grand conspiracy, the grand rebellion against God. Verse 2 says that the Hivites were part of this, uh, this alliance. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? Israel could make treaties with nations outside the land of, uh, of Canaan, but not within the land. So they asked the question. We're your servants, they said to Joshua. Now, that's nothing more than, than oriental politeness. They, they had no, no desire to be servants of God or servants of Israel. They wanted an alliance. They wanted to be friends. They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And you'll notice, conspicuous by, their, by its absence is a reference to Jericho and Ai. These, these men are very crafty. Had they mentioned Jericho and I, the cat would have been out of, out of the bag because everyone would have you, news doesn't travel that fast. Didn't travel that fast in the ancient world. Everyone would know they're privy to news that only people within the land would know. So they, this is a well thought out scheme. Our elders and all those living in our country said to us, "Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we 'We're your servants. Make a treaty with us.'" This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now you see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we fill were new, but see how cracked they are, and our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. And the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. The text simply reads, the men... Uh, received from their bread, or it could be translated, they received the men by their bread. Either translation is equally workable. If we take the first translation, they sat down with them and they formed a treaty by sharing bread and salt, which is the way treaties were formed in those days. That's how you, uh, that's how you uh, set up an alliance. Or if it's, if it's to be translated, they received the men on the basis of their bread. It gives an entirely different twist to the story. These Wiser heads, these elders, looked at the, at, at the Gibeonites and everything looked all right. And they thought, well, you know, the one test is whether or not their bread is really old and, and moldy. Let's look at the bread. So they sat down and, and, and they used their senses. They used, we would say today, the scientific method. They, they, they employed their minds to, to try to determine if this bread was indeed old. And it was. It was moldy and crusty and so they arrived at the conclusion that these Gibeonites were from a far country because they didn't inquire of the Lord. See, this is the problem. These were the wisest men in the country. 
These were the older men, the experienced men. They, they used the best tools of science and, and, and reason to try to, to establish whether or not these, uh, these ambassadors were for real. And they missed by a mile because they did not inquire of the Lord. They trusted themselves. As the proverb puts it, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll cut your path straight. In other words, he'll get you to the desired goal. They didn't do that. They, they trusted uh, themselves. And Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. By an oath, they took a, a solemn uh, vow in the name of the Lord, which bound them. And uh, they could not break that uh, treaty, as we'll see. They should have waited. They should have inquired of the Lord. They acted precipitously. Three days afterward, they discovered that they had been conned. The Israelites set out on the third day and came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beerith, Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Something to be said for integrity. They, uh, to use the word, words of uh, Psalm 15, they had sworn to their own hurt. And they had to keep their word. And the result was they were tied into these people for the rest of their natural lives. They could not break this alliance. What happened here, and this, and I want you to understand the results of this, this action. The, the, this text does not go on to tell us the consequences of their action. But what happened here was terribly serious for the future history of Israel. Because the Gibeonites did what the coalition of Canaanites could not do. They brought about the expulsion of Israel from the land. Let me tell you how that happened. The Gibeonites continued to live in Gibeon, and Gibeon became the worship center for Israel. That's where the tabernacle was located. That's where Solomon, as you know, went when he asked for wisdom. And that was the center of worship in Israel until the the temple was built. The ark was in another place, but the tabernacle was there for a number of years. That was the high place, the great high place at Gibeon. If you go on and read through the rest of chapter 9, you'll discover that, that Joshua made them slaves. They became hewers of wood and drawers of water. Those are the most menial sort, uh, those are the most menial tasks. They became Israel's slaves. They served the priests and the Levites who, who uh, led worship at, at Gibeon. That's true that some of the Gibeonites became believers. One of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. There were a number of Gibeonite families that came back from Babylon when Israel returned from exile. There were a number of Gibeonites that uh, helped Nehemiah build the wall. So some of them, like Rahab, submitted to the lordship of Israel's Lord, and they became a part of believing Israel. But most of the Gibeonites continued on in their unbelieving ways. And we're told later on in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 28, that Saul eradicated all of the wizards and the spiritists and the witches and the warlocks from Israel. And you read on into 2 Samuel, and you discover that what he did is that he tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. And the point seems to be that the Gibeonites, to the end of their days, were into all sorts of occult activities. And eventually, their occult activity and their idolatry pervaded Israel's uh, thinking, and it was one of the influences that led to the Babylonian exile. 
they, they became more and more ungodly. They drifted away from the worship of God. And eventually God had to take them into Babylon for the, for the idol cure. And so the Gibeonites accomplished what the Canaanite conspiracy could not accomplish. But it, they did it by subversion. They came in underneath. The attacks from the outside were obvious. They were blatant, easily spotted. It's the subtle stuff that gets us. And there's only one answer, and that's to go back to the truth of the Word of God and, and to inquire of Him, because as C.S. Lewis puts it in the Narnian tales, the air gets thick in Narnia, we get fogged out, we cannot see the difference between truth and error. So we have to rely upon the Word. Now, what can we make of this uh, this chapter? As I've said before, we simply have to understand what these passages mean. Well, the primary observation I want to make is that people are going to lie to us a lot. We're going to get lied to every day. And these lies essentially are, are efforts to try to subvert our faith. And if we're not careful, they're going to slip in under our guard. The reason people lie to us is because there is a liar behind them. Well, you say, well, who is that? The professor that taught my biology? No, no, we're talking about another personality. An evil, malicious, murderous personality behind the scenes whose sole motive it is to destroy the human race. And you say, ah, oh, come on, come on. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? It's the 20th century. You really think they're, you believe in Satan? You, you know, this guy's going to show up on, on your front door with his tail hanging out, and he's going to start telling you lies? That's medieval. You couldn't possibly believe that anymore. Well, I do, and the reason I do is because I believe my Lord. The Lord Jesus believed in a personal devil. And I cannot accept any any other view of reality than his. If I am... Subject to his lordship, I have to be subject to his lordship in everything. And our Lord believed that there is behind the scenes, unknown by most of the world, certainly unseen, an evil, malicious personality that is out to destroy you. Now, if you want some verification for that, would you turn to John 8? John 8.42, Jesus is engaged in controversy with the Pharisees. He said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Why? You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. What was the devil's desire? To kill Jesus. What was the Pharisee's desire? To put him to death. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the source of it all. That's why I say behind the scenes is this malicious personality who is the liar par excellence. 
His scheme, his strategy is to deceive. His ultimate purpose is to destroy. And that's why there is disease in the world. And that's why dreadful things happen to us. God is not the author of anything evil. He may permit evil to run its course. Because as we've said over and over again. He's not trying to run the world right now. He will someday. But for the present time. He's letting Satan have a certain amount of freedom. Satan is not running amok. He is controlled by God, but he's permitted to have his way with us to a certain extent. We Christians do not, we're not dualists. We don't believe in two equal and opposite powers. There's not a dark force and a light force. We believe in a sovereign creator, God, who created Satan. Satan is an angel who went bad and who is in rebellion against God. And this is his world. For the time being, God is permitting him to work his mischief on the world, but he is under God's control. Nevertheless, he is the one who's behind disease. He's the one who's behind divorce. He's the one who's behind all of the heartache and the stress and the distress that you and I experience day after day. And if we don't see that, then we don't believe the word of God. And that's where all the lies come from. And ultimately, the lies are designed to destroy Peter puts it another way, his graphic way. He says, Satan is like a roaring lion. He's, he's, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Lions roar when they're hungry. Satan is hungry for your flesh. He wants to kill you. That's why you get sick. That's why your children get sick. He wanted, he wanted to nail Christ to the cross, and he would like to nail you to the wall if he can. He's the murderer behind all of the harm and the hurt in this world. And he works his mischief by lying to us. Lying and lying and lying. And, and we are fed lies day after day through the media and through our friends. There's this stuff I call folk talk, which is just the kind of stuff that goes on in a coffee shop and in your office and the locker room where people are just handing you advice and telling you ought to, how you ought to live your life. And if you check out about 90% of that from the word, it's a pack of lies. We're being sold right down the river. And we believe it. We buy it. Some of you young men and women are going to be going into college next year and you're, you're going to walk off. Uh, walk away from home into a university campus and you're going to walk into a classroom and and this uh, wonderful, gracious, genial uh, professor is going to wander into the room. He's going to look like every, you know, just the archetypical professor that you always think of with the rumpled up corduroy coat and patches on the sleeves, smoking a briar pipe, and he's going to look and smell like academia. And he's one of these uh, men that will have you in his home and he's got great kids and he's just the nicest guy in the world. And he's going to stand up in front of your biology class someday, and he's going to say, this universe is all there is, period. It's all there is. What you see is what you get. There's nothing more. The cosmos is, uh, always has been, always will be, always was. That's all there is. And that's going to sound so good. You're going to sit there and say, hey, the guy's got a Ph.D., got two Ph.D.s. He must know what he's talking about. The boulder dash. That's not a scientific statement. That's an opinion. That's all that is. You think about that for five minutes and you realize there are all sorts of alternatives. You know, it's not my purpose this morning to try to explain that statement to you. Just think about it a little bit. There are all sorts of options to the conclusion that this universe is all there is. It may be 
that God is unseen and very much involved in the cosmos. We're just not aware that he's there apart from the revelation that he's made in, in Jesus Christ and in his word. See, that's a lie. People are believing that sort of thing day after day after day after day. Or you walk into a history class and, the, you know, the, the thing today is to revise history and history just turned on its head. I just uh, Some of you may have seen the article in Statesman the other day. I, you know, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It, it, this idea, again, that, that, it's, that Rome fell because the Christians eroded away the will of the Roman Empire to fight. You know who first started that notion? Uh, Edward Gibbons, back in the 18th century, was the first historian to ever say something like that. From the time of Augustine, from the 4th century on until the 18th century, everyone taught that Rome fell because it was totally corrupt. Gibbons came along, turned history on its head, and history professors today are spouting that sort of thing over and over again. It is a lie. We eat it up. We love it. Because, see, we really don't want God in our life. We don't want to get that close to God. We don't want to meet him up close and personal. We want to live our own life and run our own life apart from God. I just want to tell you that the devil doesn't always look like the devil. He may often appear as an angel of light. Now, the unbelieving professor that shows up is a little too blatant, a little too obvious. That's one that we can usually handle. But there are some much more subtle assaults upon us. I made a list of these, and I don't have time to talk about them this morning, but there's one I want to talk about that I am very much concerned about, as we all should be. And it's this notion that life consists of the way we look. You have to be sensual. You have to be shapely to be worthwhile. And what about those of us that are as sensual and shapely as a sack of potatoes? I mean, how do we handle something like that? You have to look like the people on the TV screen or the people in Vogue. I mean, Carolyn pointed out to me the other day that even that's a lie because the people in Vogue have been uh, airbrushed. and you know, They don't look like that. You saw them. You know, they probably have big zit on their nose or something. But it's, <laughs> in Vogue magazine, they're perfect. And that's what we're expected to, to look like. That's what, you know, that notion dominates the thinking of women. If they're not young and slender and beautiful, then they are not worthwhile. And it dominates the thinking of men. If my wife doesn't look like the woman on the TV screen, then I don't want her anymore. I don't like her anymore. I've got to find somebody else. And it's this notion that beauty is skin deep. It's, it's just the reverse of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the beauty of holiness. And the world teaches us the holiness of beauty. All that matters is being beautiful. And if you're not beautiful, you know, I've often thought, if I were a woman, I'd be real ugly. And I I don't know how I'd handle that. I mean, I'm ugly as a man, but I mean, if I were a woman, I'd really be a double ugly. What do you do do when you're confronted with that over and over and over and over again? Well, you go back to the Word and you look at, at what God has to say about our real value and where it, where it comes from. Can I inflict on you one more of my... Uh, this, this is another excerpt from the book. I'm reading them to you so you won't have to buy it. It's just one page. Stick with me here for a minute. 
I'm weary of the flap over fitness. First there were the slimming books, and then the emphasis shifted to fitness and aerobics. Apparently thin is now spiritually in, and Paul, notwithstanding, exercised profits much. We're told by some people that being fit and slender is a matter of self-control, but control may have nothing to do with it. Some of my friends can eat most folks under the table and never gain an ounce. Others are very controlled, eat well and in moderate amounts, but easily gain weight. It's a matter of metabolism and the body uh, God gave us. How can one curse what God has crafted? Or some make weight gains a matter of gluttony, which of course they may be. Gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, but it's likewise a form of gluttony to be preoccupied with food, obsessed with one's diet, insisting that food be prepared just so, refusing to eat certain foods even if we cause others embarrassment or undue effort. Actually, for a man to be obsessed with dieting or with his wife's dieting is nothing more than worldliness, conformity to the world. The preferred size and shape of the human body is a matter of convention, and conventions are established by culture, or what the Bible would call the world. The Bible sets no absolutes, says absolutely nothing about being thin. In fact, one gets the impression from reading it that biblical men and women had meat on their bones. A friend of mine suggests that King Solomon may have, may have prized obesity in his court, since he carried out the execution of Joab by instructing his aide Benaiah to go fall on him. Kidding aside, there are some serious problems with prizing size over substance. In the first place, it's backwards. The body has taken over the spirit. Paul insists that godliness comes before shapeliness. Because while physical training is of some value, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Furthermore, it's an emphasis that leads men astray. It guides them away from happy and worthwhile marriages. The current trend stresses a woman's charm and beauty rather than the fear of God. And as the wise man said, that makes for vanity and a lot of misery later on. I'm thinking of Proverbs 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. Leotards can be a cover-up for foolishness and falseness, laziness and littleness of mind. Better that God's men acquire a wife in a way that's honorable, not in mere passion like men who don't know God. Better that they seek those lasting inner qualities that make for truly beautiful women and an enduring relationship. And then it seems to me that the trend toward thin leads women astray. It sets them up for a fall. Years ago, C.S. Lewis observed, this is 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis observed that the demons have directed our taste toward an illusion. We now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old. This is said, of course, from the standpoint of Screwtape, who's a demon. That's the rub, you see. Women are being frightened out of contentment with themselves and of desiring something that doesn't exist. Being something more or less than nature permits a full-grown woman to be. In fact, I wonder if the recent rash of eating disorders among young women is not the result of an obsession with being thinner than God ever intended. And by the way, I would add to that now, since I wrote this essay, the preoccupation of men with steroids. This is the, is the drug of the moment. I hope you're aware of that. Not only among athletes who want to improve their performance, but among men who simply want to get, uh, 
have more muscles and be more macho. It's interesting. I was talking to a young man this morning after the service, a big hulk of a guy. Some of you know him. I'm going to tell you who he is. He came up, used to be a shot putter uh, at the University of Tennessee. And he said, you know, it's not just women that get this. Men get it all the time. He said, my friends, he doesn't work out anymore, didn't have time. My friends come up to me, and they poke my arm, and they say, what, what's the matter with you? You're getting skinny. And I start thinking, i got to go pump some iron. It's that illusion that what matters is what we look like on the outside. Better that we should encourage both men and women to believe that one's beauty is the imperishable beauty of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way, and here I'm quoting Peter, the holy women of old who put their trust in God used to make themselves beautiful. You have to understand that. The true beauty is inner beauty. That's what lasts. That's what endures. That's what makes for meaningful marriages. And we've fallen for this lie, this horrible lie, that what matters is what we look like. And the problem is we can never look like what the people look like on the screen and on the page. We can't. And so we just drive ourselves crazy. And behind it is the evil one who wants to murder and destroy. We must not fall into that trap. May I share one more passage of Scripture with you, and then I'm done. Second Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy three twelve. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As I say, that verse is not in my promise book, <clears throat> box, but it's nevertheless a promise. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The word for imposters here is the word in uh, the Greek language for professional mourners, people that you pay to come and cry at your funeral. Fakers, liars, hypocrites. He says, this, this is going to get worse. The world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. It's going to go from bad to worse. People will be deceived. Uh, people will be deceiving and they'll believe their own lies. Which is which? Why it makes it, why it's so difficult to convince people that they're not on the right track? They themselves are deceived. But here's one of those corner words where you, you, you just turn 90, 90 degrees. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. To those is plural it refers to. Eunice and Lois, Timothy's godly grandmother and mother, who taught him the Bible from the time he was knee high to a duck, and Paul and Peter and all the others that had expounded upon the Word of God and had spoken and written Holy Scripture. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know how to make your way through life without cracking up on some rock? You go back to the Word. You listen to what the Word says. That's the only thing that can save you. One other passage. Look across the page. Chapter 2, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they had produced quarrels. Don't, don't argue with people. Paul says that's foolish and stupid. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Don't be quarrelsome. Sometimes we have to enter into controversy. Our Lord was a controversialist at times. You have to. Otherwise, as George MacDonald says, you, you end up smiling in the face of the devil. Sometimes you, you have to enter into controversy. But don't be quarrelsome. 
Don't, be, don't quarrel, he says. Instead, you must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Gently instruct. With what? The word of God. Those who have believed the lie in your office, your campus, you must gently instruct them. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses. It's a word that's used in classical Greek for sobering up after a period of drunkenness. You'll sober up and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I would encourage you to think about that statement in terms of of the, the current spate of obsessive, compulsive problems that we're facing. Can it be that this is simply nothing more or less than Satan capturing people to do his will? They start out doing things they want to do, and then they have to do them. There's no alternative. They're dominated by the, the practices after a period of time. How do you, how do you release them? Well, you, you, you love them, you're patient with them, you're gentle, you're kind, and you just speak the truth to them. Tremendous authority. And the person who just quietly, lovingly speaks the truth in the world where everybody else is telling lies. As John Fisher says, read the Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. Everybody else is lying. But the words inside this book are true and reliable. What power, what authority that gives us in this world. There's an old Harpo Marx segment. Some of you may remember it. I love it. Harpo's leaning against the bank building. Cop comes by and he says, what do you think you're doing, holding up the bank? Harpo, you know, didn't talk, so he just smiles and nods his head. And the cop says, all right, move along now, move along. And Harpo moves away and the bank falls down. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Same sort of authority we have, that quiet authority that comes from believing the word of God and proclaiming it. That's why Paul says in chapter 4 at the end of this book, preach the word. He's not talking about preachers. The word is used of the the heralds of the king. All of us are heralds of the king. Proclaim it without fear, without favoritism, Paul says. Out there where where people are believing the lie. Let's uh, let's pray. Lord, your your people became fools because they, they did not consult you. Grant that we would never believe the lie, but we would always believe that what you tell us is true. The world is telling us that life consists of an abundance of things, and we know that's not true. The more we have, the more we want. simply makes us dissatisfied with our state. The world tells us that beauty is skin deep, that what matters is the outer man. What the word tells us is that the outer man is going to fade, but though the outer man fades, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our true beauty, our true worth is that inward beauty of character that comes from walking with you and knowing you and loving you. Lord, help us to distinguish between the truth and the lies. Help us to be men and women of truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.